Section 9. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 9. James Simpson, First Magistrate of the Settlement. He hath an excellent good name. Much ado about nothing. When the settlement began, and when, like the pre-judges, time in Israel, every man did as he pleased, the inevitable inconvenience of that ultra-radical paradise led the small community to seek out a male Deborah, and, with one accord, they made choice of James Simpson, their early fellow emigrant in the tide from Launceston. Had there been even a much larger society, the choice would probably have been surely the same, for it would have been difficult indeed to find anyone who, in the grace and command of natural presence, exceeded this inaugurator of authority in Victoria. His figure, rather tall, shapely, well-developed, surmounted by a noble head, bald with age, just touching the venerable, and with a genial expression of face, which, however, never descended to levity, although times without number to a smile or slight laugh. He sat erect upon the bench, facile princeps, as though institutions were to bend to him, and not he to them. When we entered the little hut-like structure in the middle of the western market area, so long Melbourne's only police office, James Simpson seemed to us as much a part of its fittings as the rude little bench itself, and it was a disappointment not to find him there, as the indispensable complement to the scene, even although better conduct in the community was to be inferred. How so striking, so influence-wielding a man did not get or take a still more leading position than he had was due, perhaps to some indolence of nature, to a rare and inviolable contentment, or to a mixture of both. He took what fell in his way, magistracies, bank directorships, or what else, and lived unambiguously on his moderate but sufficient means, always in the front social position, and, of course, in universal respect. And how, again, so quiet a spirit adventured across amongst the tag-rags of the earlier Launceston tide, unless indeed under some benevolent inspiration and prescience about the magisterial needs, is a mystery which, although I often converse with him, I never happened to hear him explain. David Charteris MacArthur, father of Victorian banking. A man of good repute, carriage, bearing, and estimation. Loves labour lost. Almost as early a colonist as Simpson, his intimate friend, his colleague in the Melbourne branch of the Bank of Australasia, 
of which he was himself general manager, with Simpson as director. MacArthur fitly follows the other in this list of early colonial prominence. To the day of his death he held the first position, active or honorary, in Victorian banking, but he was even better known, or at least better regarded, as par excellence, mine host, of the early community. During a long life, of which the later and much the larger half was spent in Victoria, there was none who entered more readily, constantly or acceptably, into the varied life of the community. His leisure, such as he had, his means, his fellowship, were at their command. He was geniality personified, but he was a banker, and a banker has duties, and in the ups and downs of colonial business life he was but too often reminded to that effect. It was quite a sight if you happened to witness the scene with a bank customer, to whom, as to the state of his account, it was necessary to administer what Max countrymen call a hearing. Often he had to pity victims of circumstances in the sudden changes of colonial commerce, but the gods of boon can only ken, to discriminate impartially in such cases, and duty to the bank must be done. First, the humorous twinkle in the eye sensibly abated, but it still lingered there, unless there must be still stronger stages of the ordeal, to bring the business culprit to reason. But when the last gleam went out, a storm was certainly imminent. The storm, however, swept past on the instant with the provocation. When that eye finally closed, a veritable sunbeam of the colony went out with it. Mrs. MacArthur, who still survives, went hand in hand with her husband. That they were an attached couple has the complimentary illustration of his making her his full heir. As they had no family to divide cares and means, we must blame the less the surpassing hospitalities that distinguished them. MacArthur had really no other fault, unless indeed we must fall back on the general limitation which Adam Smith had to admit, even in the excellence of his departed friend Hume. For, after all, a man can be good or perfect only, so far as the nature of human frailty will permit. Charles Joseph Latrobe, C.B., Superintendent of Port Phillip, and First Lieutenant Governor of Victoria. However God or fortune casts my lot, there lives or dies a loyal, just, and upright gentleman. Richard II. The more I saw of the subject of this sketch over nearly all the fifteen years of his unusually prolonged and varied officiate, the more I explained his case by the excusing consideration that he was where he was without his own consent. He was naturally a quiet, amiable, unambitious man, full of official activity and ability, in a prescribed line or under the instructions of superiors. Thus commended at Sydney, 
he accepted, as matter of course, or of duty, his appointment by the governor in 1839 to the superintendency of the Port Phillip community, a small body as yet, although making an ominously loud noise upon the far southern skirts of the vast colonial expanse of which Sydney was then the official and business centre. The charge did not then seem to threaten to be an anxiously large one, and in any case his inaugurtory office might hardly remove him from the accustomed instruction of superiors. What he did not bargain for was that the child he went to nurse was to rush almost from the cradle into manhood, and the little settlement he began his reign with to be. Er, he had done with it. The most notable, if not indeed actually the most important, colony of the empire. He was a Moravian Christian of a well-known name in that excellent body, and possessed of all its virtues. He was, besides, a well-educated gentleman. The pure and happy home which he transferred to the new scene was of priceless value to its society, and all the more so at a time when such virtuous homes in such high quarters, were by no means overcommon thereabout. But with a natural shyness and, in a socio-political sense, timidity of character, which in ordinary circumstances are feelings leaning to the better side, he exemplified how a good man may not always be a good ruler of men. The diffidence is often mistaken by the ruled, and always disappointing, and in public affairs it is apt, as Mr. Latrobe but too well illustrated, to take the inconvenient and injurious form of personal indecision. He had not a particle of pride or selfishness, hardly even of the commoner infirmity of vanity. He would, whenever possible, take a roundabout to escape observation, but if even the humblest colonist persisted to address him, unrepelled by the evident tendency to move on, he would be as frank and unceremonious as our queen in a highland cottage. We regret that so righteously stored a man should make a bad governor, but so it was, none the less. There was comparatively little damage during the day of smaller things, prior to the gold. Still, even then, the characteristics told, in the reluctance to resolve upon action, in any departure from the red tape of the beaten track, in a young settlement of men, nearly all in the exuberant prime of life, and almost daily called upon, amongst Australia peculiarities, to confront their novel circumstances. For instance, upon rumours oft repeated, that there was good workable coal at Western Port. A party is formed with capital in readiness to give the case a thorough testing, and they, as a course, apply to the government to give them all those aids and concessions, or at least a sufficiency of them, which could most easily have been given in that quarter. 
for Mr. Latrobe was practically the government. He referred the matter to Mr. Crown Solicitor Croke to ascertain what might be the legal impediments. Impediments, obstacles, difficulties, but who had asked for them? The application had been for facilities. Of course, Mr. C.S. Croke, as instructed, and with all the facility of any lawyer worth his salt, duly found the required impediments, and so the disturbing enemy was defeated, and the government left at rest. But when the goldfields' grand drama of progress opened, when thousands promptly flowed into Victoria from neighbouring colonies, and, a little later on, ten thousands from home, this charriness of action, this resolute irresolution, or, in Oliver's description of his master Napoleon, before he, in an unlucky moment, swayed over to his side, this obstinate indecision, proved sadly damaging to the colony, although, indeed, under all the circumstances, it was hardly possible for any obstacle whatever to arrest materially its marvellous growth. Of course, the interest of the colony, thus enviably favoured, was to settle as best it could this strong of enterprising humanity over its vast and all but empty areas, and that could only have been done by prompt and adequate access to the land. But some current differences as to the bearing or rights of squatting leases gave the governor, the superintendent being now in that higher position, the too ready excuse for his infirmity of indecision. Even the squatting difficulty, which could have been easily removed by a reserve of compensation for whatever of it might have been real, was only one part perhaps not even the chief part, of the wretched case. Acres by the million, on either side, along the busy highways, and around the many goldfield outbreaks, small and great, from which the livestock, where there had been any, were now all driven away, might have been brought to market at once without real injury to any interest. The squatters, naturally enough, sided with the governor, giving him an encouraging semblance of public principle. For did not the one-third of United Crown officials and Crown nominateds, plus the Crown tenants in our first so-called representative legislature, show, on this question, a small majority for the Crown? At last, when the public scandal of so grievous a spectacle made no longer inaction impossible, when the disappointed and shiftless immigrants began to beat a retreat from the inhospitable colony, the balance streaming by thousands into Canvas Town, or wandering helpless elsewhere, and mostly ruined by the cost of living, for a cabbage had risen to five shillings at the goldfields, and to two shillings and sixpence in Melbourne. The governor, by an adroit move, in the despair of the position, referred the case home. Their common sense decided it at once, or at least as quickly as might have been expected from the leisurely ways of the colonial office of those far-back times. 
but the decision came, in a very great measure, much too late. There had been, in the meantime, a blazing fire of land speculation, which, unlike other fires, had blazed all the more intensely from the want of fuel. The small supply of land, and the fury of multitudinous demands, had driven up prices to such absurd, and the utilities considered such impossible heights, that the inevitable reaction had already begun, involving numbers of families in most sudden and unexpected loss, and not a few in ruin. But Victoria easily recovered from and forgot this preliminary and bad physicking, and was soon to be seen galloping on its road of progress as if nothing to its damage could ever have happened. Full of work for the day, full of hope for the morrow, and the busy colonists saluted cordially the departing governor. For my part I do not grudge it to him, for his motives and conduct were of the purest, and he was ever withal a right good Christian gentleman. Sir John O'Shannessy, Premier and foremost public man of Victoria. Altogether directed by an Irishman, a very valiant gentleman, I faith, Henry V. One of O'Shannessy's oft-repeated jokes, told with the humorous twinkle of his eye, was that all men are born free and equal, and must remain so. He was wide as the poles asunder from the radical leveller, as this joke of his might help to show. Indeed, he was decidedly conservative, in a general socio-political sense of the word. While in strong sympathy with the mass of his countrymen, he might have limped at times alongside even of Parnell, to say nothing of David and O'Donovan Rosa. He had more than O'Connell's dread to pass irretrievably outside the law, although he might not have scrupled to drive the proverbial carriage and six through law's usual dubities of expression, particularly in certain sections of the Victorian Education Acts. As one of the earliest Irish colonists from the old country, he soon rose to the leading position amongst his fellow colonists, Irishmen. His qualities, alike in physique and mind, easily gave him that position. His tall, massive form, with the imperitable, good-humoured smile that, even when annoyed by an opponent, he could hardly dismiss from his face, except, perchance, by a blend of the sarcastic, his deliberate manner in speaking, and his sonorous voice gave him this surpassing influence. But in colonial public life, where he had to encounter greater competition and sharper criticism than in his own smaller Irish world, he lay under some disadvantages. Like his friend and occasional opponent, Faulkner, he had an ungainly gait and rather mannerless address. He had, too, a rich Clonmel brogue, and certainly he had not enjoyed an education at all commensurate with his great natural endowments. But all defects notwithstanding, 
he steadily rose in political estimation, and for the simple reason that his views of public affairs were characteristic of the statesman, more perhaps than those of any others associated with him. He first entered public life in 1851 as one of the three representatives for Melbourne in Victoria's first parliament, but doubtful perhaps with his anti-radical temperament as to the fickleness of large-town populations, as well, possibly, as the dread of his liability to get compromised by the over-zeal of supporters. He changed the venue to the small semi-Irish town of Kilmore, where his seat was always secure, until, in his advancing years, he condescended to the less laborious sphere of the upper house. I saw much of O'Shaughnessy at the outset of Victorian legislation, when he and I, in 1851-3, to sat together as colleagues for Melbourne in the single chamber of that inaugurative time, and afterwards when we were associated in the Goldfields Commission, 1854-5. to Often I noticed the unerring bent of his mind towards the statesman's broad view of subjects of political controversy. As a sincere Catholic, he was sometimes trammelled as he ran with liberal Protestant majorities. In the education question, for instance, as already hinted, seeing that Victoria stands amongst the most advanced in the rigid secularity of its teaching, to the extent, at least, of what of instruction is provided, and gratuitously provided, by public money. But in general he was anxious to be reasonably accordant with public opinion, so much so, indeed, in that profane direction, as Gibbon might have phrased it, as not to be quite reckonable with the extreme of the Jesuit or ultramontane section of his church. I recollect and record with pleasure one of the Goldfields Commission incidents illustrative of O'Shaughnessy's high public qualities. We had completed at Castlemaine, near the original Mount Alexander, our considerable tour of Goldfields inspection and as we sat round the table of the only public room of the small hotel or public house of the place, the evidence completed and all the proposed changes decided on, there remained yet one question. Our proposed chief pecuniary change abolished the indiscriminate and, to the many unsuccessful, most oppressive charge of thirty shillings monthly license fee and substituted a yearly fee or fine of only twenty shillings. And what was this, or the documentary receipt that represented it, to be called? Reduced as the amount was, it was still a tax, and any ingenuity that could dignify or otherwise reconcile a tax was worthy of the best statecraft. As chairman, and not having at the moment a suggestion of my own, I had to knock at the heads of my co-members. I turned to one, then another, and yet another, but without response. Even the original brain of Faulkner sent forth no sign. 
At length I came to O'Shaughnessy, who happened to be at the far end of the table. He had been waiting his turn, and the answer came promptly. Call it the miner's right. It was but one out of many instances of his statement's like turn. The miner's right, of course, it was called. The name passed on to many other gold fields. I noticed it in British Columbia shortly after, with its new gold discoveries, for the Commission's report had attracted much attention, owing to the forefront position which Golden Victoria had already assumed in the world. End of section 9